everybody and welcome back to Office Hours. This week we have Dr. Amanda Murdy and she will be discussing international affairs and human security and interventions. Uh, this week, Dr. Murdy, we'd like to talk to you and get to know you a little bit better. Um, we know that you were a guest uh, for our coffee hour a couple weeks ago and we we're so grateful that you wanted to come back and talk to us more specifically about topics you're interested in. Uh, so to just dive right in, I'm going to ask you some basic, like, uh, get to know you questions. And so sure. the first one I have for you is, what do you teach? Um, so I'm the department head, which means I don't teach as much as uh, I used to. Uh, but this semester, I'm teaching a class on uh, data analytics for our MIP students. It's like one of my favorite classes to teach. Over the summer, I'm going to teach uh, Introduction to World politics, introduction to international relations, the 3200 class. And next fall, I'll be teaching an online class on terrorism. Very interesting. So of the classes that you've taught or are about to teach, which one do you think is your favorite? I love teaching the data analytics class. Um, yeah. I believe everybody can learn data analytics without, um, with, even if they're a math phobe. Uh, I actually started my kind of statistics and data background when I was really scared of taking a math class. That's probably why I majored in what I did is I did not want to blow my GPA by taking uh, any sort of math. And then I just came to love it for the way, you know, I think about the world and the, the patterns that we can see and all that sort of stuff. So I love teaching that class because I love showing people all that they can do without having to dive into, you know, kind of the math and statistics that's under the hood. So it's a fun class to teach. I bet. I mean, I find it interesting, but I feel like I'm one of those like rare birds uh, that likes math and statistics and things like that, even though I'm a very much socially science or political yeah. science oriented person. Um, but you, there's a lot to learn from that. And I mean, it's not going anywhere. So it's important to learn. It's not. It's not. It's not going anywhere. It's becoming part of our everyday life. And there's so many cool things. Like there's so many cool things that you can look at with data now. We just went over maps last week in my class, which was fun. Um, but two weeks ago, we went over Twitter and like just downloading tweets on specific, specific topics and then, you know, mapping out what those tweets look like. It's fun stuff. It's really fun stuff. That's really interesting. Didn't know you could download tweets. You can, you can, you can download them directly into a, a couple of different statistical programs. You just have to have your own Twitter account and then get a developer's account, which is free to do. So it's really fun. Good to know. Okay, well, changing gears from data analytics, um, what did you what did you get your degrees in, and from where? Sure. So my I grew up. Uh, my grandparents are from all of my grandparents are from Georgia, um, but my dad was drafted during Vietnam, and I grew up in the middle of the country, and so I graduated high school from Kansas, and I went to Kansas State University for my bachelor's and my master's, and then I went to Emory in Atlanta for my PhD. All of my degrees so far have been in political science. I think I had like a secondary major in international studies with, uh, for my bachelor's, kind of like the certificate program you would do here. So you're the the first professor we've had in a couple of weeks that had the more like traditional route and study, but I think that's good for students to see so that they can understand that it's nothing is linear, but sometimes it is, and that's a good thing. So it, it totally is. So my path was weird because it was linear. I never took a semester off, but I did have a baby as an undergraduate and another baby as a master's student, and worked out great. I mean, they're now. Um, they're now UGA students themselves, so worked out perfect. 
Oh, look at that. Well, how do you think they like uh, getting some more into your personal life? Yeah. Um, what are some of your like general interests and hobbies? Um, so we go on a lot of hikes or we did when we could go on a lot of hikes. Uh, for the last year, we've been watching a lot of Netflix. Uh, I've gotten to watch Tiger King and Better Call Saul. Um, yeah, all sorts of like Netflix shows. We've been really kind of quarantining during the, uh, during the pandemic. So um, unfortunately, we've watched a lot of TV and ate a lot of food that we're finding recipes to eat online or to make online. So yeah, nothing that exciting. Um, fun things. I don't know. I, I've signed up for like Ipsy and BoxyCharm, like the makeup subscription stuff. That's kind of fun, I guess, for a, for a professor. That seems fun. Um, I think that's fun. I don't have yeah, one of those, I, but it's just like I, a surprise inside every time. It's a surprise inside every month. It's so great. Yeah. Um, so maybe that's like a hobby to the extent that I have a hobby. Um, what else? That's, that's probably about it. I've got, uh, we have a cat and a dog and a bird and, um, you know, I like hanging out with all, all of them as well. What kind of birds and or I guess what kind of pets do you have like what kinds of breeds yeah um so the bird is a green cheek conure he's 10 years old um and he has free range in the house so he has a cage but then he'll fly down uh the stairs and fly down and find us in our rooms and like visit with us for a little bit and then he'll fly back up uh he kind of runs the house we have a cat that is terrified of him so the cat actually will torment the i'm sorry the bird will torment the cat so the bird will find the cat and bite his tail and then fly away um and then we have a little havanese dog who's five um but he's like the scaredy cat of the household so he's scared of everything the bird and the cat um but yeah they're fun it's really fun to have pets i agree i think that's something you don't hear about every day like about a bird being more terrifying or being like the dominant pet in the house between the oh. cat and dog but i good for the bird i guess he he is he's the one we've had the longest and he's the most demanding um <laughs> he requires nothing in vet bills like he's only been to the vet once in 10 years like he just they're just kept I guess but he he could live for 30 to 40 years so we're going to be stuck with him for quite some time wow um, that yeah. is a commitment <laughs> it is a commitment it is. okay well going into now the more academia um related topics I want to talk to you more about like human security interventions and international affairs and how they all tie together into like, not necessarily a neat bundle, but a bundle of sorts. Um, so what are the benefits of focusing on human security versus national security? Well, sure. Well, I think at the end of the day, we wanna keep national security to keep humans alive. Um, so I think humans are kind of central to everything we study as social scientists and everything we strive for as, um, humanitarians or people that are interested in human rights. I like human security as a concept because I think the word security in a lot of people's minds means it's, it's really important um, and that it's something that, that kind of uh, matters at a really high level. And so it's my belief that the human rights and human security cover almost all the same thing. Uh, but human security sometimes gets people's attention where the term human rights does not. Um, so that's why I've, I've tended to focus on, on human security. My first position, I taught at the Command and General Staff College at Fort Leavenworth. 
And the first time I offered one of my courses, I offered it as human rights. And I had like three or four people enroll in it. And the second time I offered the same exact course, but I just called it human security and I had everybody enroll. So like I had it awful. So I think the term human security is just something that resonates with a lot of people. I mean, definitely. There's some things that like we talk about in IA or in political science that's very oriented on like the verbiage that you use. And yeah. um, that makes a much of as much of a difference um, in the concepts itself and the importance of them as like just the term because absolutely how we frame a problem matters yeah, yeah absolutely for sure okay so what would you define uh the metrics of human security as like what are some examples that you have yeah so human security in general is freedom from want and freedom from fear and so if you think about it that way there's lots of different metrics that you can think about in regards to human security um, you can think about it as everything from global happiness so there's actually a global happiness index that measures just how happy people are in uh in general and Finland was number one on that list last year and the U.S. was uh, number 19th I think um you can measure it in, in terms of the freedoms that people have, the freedoms that they can enjoy when they go out in the street or they think they're going to be safe um, from crime, but do they also think they'll be safe from their own government? Do they think their government's going to protect them or do they think their government is going to, um, you know, uh, imprison them with, without due process or imprison them for their political beliefs? Um, so that would all be things that you could look at for the freedom from fear side. For the freedom from want, there's all sorts of things. Um, a lot of uh, research looks at uh, life adjusted, or let's see, disability adjusted life expectancy. So those are called dailies. And it's basically just looking at once you account for things that make someone's life a little bit harder to live, how long can we expect someone to, to be alive and be kind of functioning and, and be able to do what they want? So that would be one way to look at freedom from want. Um, caloric intake, there's a lot of people that look at caloric intake as one way of thinking about how, um, how someone's human security is actually you know, realized at the, at the daily level. And then you know, there's all sorts of things that affect freedom from want. So everything from vaccinations to state capacity. So the term in some ways is it's awesome because it's so broad and it can, and everything can go under kind of this human security lens. But at the same time, sometimes it's so broad that it's hard to think of one or two metrics that covers everything. Absolutely. I mean, there's, and you touched on small things like you could go and dive into what food security is and like Absolutely. as we talked about last week vaccination as a collective action problem and how that affects a lot of people um so it's a rabbit hole really <laughs> it, it is it is absolutely and i mean i think i say to my students a lot that the world is not money monocausal it's not just one thing that's causing everything but it's also that we don't have to just look at one outcome we can look at a lot of different outcomes to kind of uh, understand the the human condition and understand human security for sure okay so um how do you think interventions affect human security well i wish i could give you one like they're good or they're bad answer but i can't and um i think all of getting a phd is really to coming to the conclusion that everything depends 
Um, so interventions can improve human security. And by interventions, that that's really broad. So interventions can be things like uh, non-governmental organizations going in and providing foodstuffs or humanitarian assistance to military interventions. And military interventions can vary. They can be everything from UN peacekeepers on the ground to actually having um, some sort of kinetic uh, fighting conflict where neither side wants the intervener to be there. So there's lots of different variation in the types of interventions and lots of variation into the conditions where that intervention is happening. Is it happening after a natural disaster? Is the intervention happening um, become, because of some sort of conflict or in some sort of post-conflict situation? In general, I think there are certain conditions where interventions can be helpful. Uh, so my, only, my early work looked at uh, this idea that interventions can only help when the interveners and the domestic population that they're wanting to help when they actually have preferences that align. So if the intervener can be really well-meaning, but if they want to come in and bring some sort of human security intervention that is not desired by the local population, they can actually end up making things worse. Um, but if the intervener does come in and really take the, the position of, of being in support of what the grassroots actually wants, that um, there are still some times where the intervention won't work. Like the tasks that uh, the intervener wants to, to take place just are too complex and, and you really won't see that change. But if the intervention is something where the task is pretty specific and the action is in line with what the grassroots wants, that's where you can see a situation where human security can improve. That makes a lot of sense. And um, I think that's something that is should be um, intuitive, but sometimes it isn't. And it's hard to express or dive into that when you don't really know where to begin. And I think that preferences is a great place to start. So. Um, so what do you think are some examples of subliminal yet important infringements of human security, either through the interventionist lens or from interventions or not? Um, so infringements on human security. So one that I, I think that's we know a lot about as social scientists is this idea of sanctions and the effects that sanctions have on human rights and human security. So a lot of times sanctions are actions that countries take because they want to do something right you and i are sitting and, and we see something really horrible going on and we want to we want our government to take action and so we say like please sanction this other country make sure that people pay um but there's a lot of social science research that shows that sanctions in general make a situation worse and they really make a situation worse for women and children um, and minority populations within a country and so that would be one intervention that's often it, it's even in the past been called for by human rights organizations but a sanction um, situation might actually make things worse okay that, that answers my question, I think. Yeah. Good. So Good. what kind of, like, in your opinion, what kind of impact does human security have on international affairs? I think it has a huge impact. I think we sometimes forget that the way people are treated and, and kind of their expectations and what, whether their expectations are fulfilled matter for how they're going to communicate with the government. So one of the interesting findings um, in my research and a lot of other people's research is that when human security is protected that you're going to get less insurgency and less terrorism. So there is a national security kind of uh, output as a result of human security. And 
my work is, has typically focused on that, that outcome of civil conflict or insurgency, but there's other research. Uh, there's a great article by uh, uh, Timothy Peterson and then another great article by David Sobeck where they look at how uh, human security or human rights actually makes a country less likely to go to international war. So a country that is better able to protect its own citizens, something happens where it's uh, less likely to, to go to war. And um, that's a great finding. We've talked a lot in the 1990s about democratic peace theory, but one of the mm -hmm. sad things about democratic peace theory is that there's no such thing as democratizing peace theory. So that when a country is democratizing, it's sometimes the most dangerous for uh, the international community. But the same thing can't be true with, with this kind of human rights for peace. Uh, if a country just kind of incrementally improves their human rights and human security, we have that kind of linear outcome as, as making things better at the world community. Good to know. Okay, well, thank you for your opinions and your, your commentary. Yeah. We are out of time, um, but I really appreciate it. And I think everyone listening will agree or take something away from this conversation. So, Absolutely, um, I'm happy to talk more with anyone. Yeah, I mean, I'll put, we'll be able to give or uh, share your contact information with students as well. So, um, and if they aren't already familiar with you, there's many ways that you can be found through the SPIA website. So um, thank you, Dr. Murdy, for talking to us today. Awesome, thanks for having me.